right, y'all. Welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, I got badass strength coach Alex Friedman living out in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to be talking about artistry in mixed martial arts, strength and conditioning, and healthcare, and not making it so rigid, making it a little bit more on the open end or the flowy end. I feel like a lot of the times when we get into skill practice specifically is where I had this idea. We, we think that everything has a yes or a no, a right or a wrong. It has to be rigid. And in reality, for some people that works, some people want outlined hard rules, but for the majority, myself included, you need to be able to flow a little bit. You got to have a little bit of artistic freedom and be able to scramble, be able to find what works for your body because the, the likelihood of a coach matching the exact same style and body type as you are very, very, very low. So you got to be able to figure out what works for you as opposed to what works for the majority. Yeah, I think uh, exactly that. And I think there's a there's a sweet spot and there's a happy medium that we all need to appreciate more on the artistry end because there is like good position versus bad position. There is uh, logical sets and reps and then kind of illogical flowy type of stuff. But right now, I think the balance is a little too shifted towards the, you know, the, the discipline, the rigidity, the um, drill science-esque. Exactly, of it all. But we need to skew that a little more back towards the artistry mentality where it's like you take control of your own process and like, and it's not, I'm going to perform this movement this way because, you know, coaches in my ear, it's like, I want to perform this movement because I want to perfect my own movement, my own um, practice, my own movement, my own game plan, my own feel for what is is right either in the skill practice or what is uh, the right feeling for me in the strength conditioning session. And I think strength conditioning is probably the most guilty of this, right? Like yeah. every strength conditioning ever is, is sets, reps, circuits, this time on that time off this. And as much as we utilize and we need to rely on that scientific information and those set protocols, we got to break free of them. Like almost, and I try to do it at least once per session at least once per session with an athlete in front of me, I try and break free of that rigid sets reps or the rigid um, like 20 on 20 off type of stopwatch coaching. So just try and find gaps where we can allow the athlete to be an artist. We can allow again, our mixed martial artists to bring in some artistry on their own accord. Well, and it increases movement proficiency is what I love about it. Like, like I said at the beginning, each person needs to know how to move their own body the best way possible. I feel like a lot of the times this rigid, I guess, dynamic is what we'll use the, the rigid coaching style. It's the coaches that start working on beginners and they work their way up. They go through the coaching ranks. They become this coach for high level fighters or for high level jujitsu athletes, but they still stay using rigid outlines because that's what got them to the dance. Instead of allowing, or actually, I want to take a step back, which was a hundred percent exactly what they should have done, mm -hmm. working with beginners, because yeah. beginners need to be able to have a rigid outline. The entire purpose for a rigid protocol or for rights and wrongs is to teach beginners fundamental skills to lay a foundation for that sport that they're going into. You need to teach people that don't know what's going on, what's right, what's wrong, and how to be safe and effective in a sport. But I would argue that once you get past that that beginner stage, once you get into the intermediate or actually into where you would consider yourself good, that's what takes you from good to great. 
is being able to freestyle, being able to move like an artist in there. Like when I'm wrestling, I don't, I don't call my, like, I, I try to do weird things with my body and I'm almost being an artist out there. Like I tell everybody, like I, if, if you know me, personal anecdote, I still can't color in the lines and I'm 26. I don't do art well, but what I, when I'm on the wrestling mat, that is my physical art. I'm trying to move my body in unique ways that allow me to get a biomechanical advantage over the person in front of me. It's not about hitting a double leg. It's how can I hit the best shot to score these points in a way that feels as safe, as effective, and as biomechanically advantaged as possible to finish that shot. If I am taking a shot or I'm waiting for somebody to shoot on me and then I do a conglomeration of cluster fuckery <laughs> and scramble in some way, shape or form to get on top. But to me, scrambling is an art form. And that's how I think we need to skew our skill coach, strength coach and healthcare practices is once we teach somebody the rough outlines for how to be safe and effective, we need to allow them to then in turn explore all of the different boundaries for themselves and not say, no, that's wrong. Instead of saying, no, that's wrong, watch, observe, see what they're doing and try to add feedback to make what they're doing better as opposed to saying no. As soon as you add in that negative feedback, that's going to decrease their likelihood of exploring options. You don't want to make somebody uh, less fluid. You don't want to take somebody out of a flow state just because they did one wrong thing that you don't think is going to work. You need to highlight the strengths of their artistry instead of highlighting the weaknesses or I guess the flaws of what they're trying to do. Right. And I think that whole thing goes into like, you're not, a lot of us get in the mindset of we're trying to fit this athlete in our box of perfect mo movement of what we think is biomechanically sound of what we think is, you know, the textbook version of things where in like in mixed martial arts, in sport, in, you know, the cluster fuckery, I think you said of what you're doing. There's no conglomeration of cluster fuckery. There you go. There's, <laughs> there's no right way to do that. Right. I mean, so there's a box that I think as a strength coach, you need to let go sometimes and let athletes be athletes. Like exactly like you're saying, when you're wrestling Austin, each, person, each individual has their own expression of art, right? Whether it's on the mat, whether it's, you know, on a canvas, um, whether it's, you know, in the weight room, whatever it is, everybody has their thing, how they express themselves and express their, their performance or their artistry. So I think as a coach, we need to indulge that and build that exactly like you're saying, and not take away from it and make it, how do they fit into my box of my coaching artistry, right? So that, that is the bare bones of being a coach is enhancing what they have and letting them be the artist versus trying to fit them as a, a tool in your artist, your art well, history. And exactly what you're saying, art appeals to different people, different art mm -hmm. appeals to different people, right? So like what Khabib does is art, how he bundles mm -hmm. those legs, how he ties up the legs, how he just relentlessly ground and pounds the fuck out of people. That is art. It yeah. might not appeal to you. Some coaches might not be able to coach that style. They mm -hmm. might think that that's bullshit or boring, but that is art in and of itself. And it allowed him to, his, his freedom of expression was always there. The yeah. same can be said for Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. Mm -hmm. What he does on the feet is art. The way that he goes in and out, controls the distance, stays away from the wrestling shot for the most part, is able to hit those blitzes or those flurries. MVP, Michael Madden Page is another fantastic example of this style but some people can't coach that and some people think that it, it looks like you're fleeing or you're evading 
when in reality it's their expression but at the end of the day like just like how normal artists like some people like salvador dali some people like picasso some people like van gogh it it doesn't matter if you like it or not art is art is art and you want to let these people develop their art and their artistic styles the best they can because that's when you get somebody who's unique because the other thing about steven wonderboy thompson the reason why he shot up so fast he's fucking unique he I, I would argue that if we're teaching such a rigid outline in anything, like I said, skill, strength, healthcare, whatever, that doesn't allow them to become unique. That's making them one of the many. I don't want to make my athletes one of the many because then they sit right around that 10 to 15 number range. They're never going to get to the top. If you notice the people that are always at the top, you got Francis Ngannou, crazy ass power, but he's very unique in the way he sets it up. He, he does a couple flurries for a heavyweight that's kind of weird the way that he sets up his flurries. You move your way down. You have, I mean, what was John Jones? Potentially, and not potentially, the best mixed martial artist of all time. The definition of an artist. When he's in there, he does weird shit and it works. You work your way down. You got Izzy, same exact thing. He's a fucking artist in there. And you got Kamaru, a different type of artist. He controls people on the cage. He's a brute. He does these different things, but that's what makes him unique. His cardio, his, his power makes him unique. Working all the way, all the way down the entire roster. But if you're at the top, if you're one of the top three in each weight class, you're probably unique in one way, shape or form. You're not just, I, I guess I would say you're not just rigid and only follow the rules of technique. Well, and, and I think a key point there though, is, is we're not being unique to be unique. You're being yeah. unique because it works. Right. And, and that's the, the ultimate thing is like, what is useful and what is helpful in being unique versus what is just different. I think that's again more of a societal observation. Different is not useful, you know, yes. being different in a useful way is what makes things impactful. You know, I think of a guy like, like you're talking about being unique and being creative. I think of like Dominic Cruz with how yeah. he moves and everything that yeah. he does. Like he's not, just moving his feet in a way just to like stand out or just to get notoriety or attention. He's like, is doing it because he legitimately throws off his opponents and he leads the dance then in his awkward style, which is, is great. So I think exactly like you said about teaching the fundamentals and, and giving your athletes outlines to what is more effective because there is a, a, a point of diminishing returns where like, just because it's different doesn't mean it's better. So we give them the tools and we try and guide that along. But exactly like you're saying, you have to allow your athletes to develop their own style, to develop their own attacks. Like there's nothing better than, than seeing a guy walk in with a little bit of swag and he knows what he's got going on. He's ready to kill the session. And it's because he's doing it his own way, not because he's letting the, the situation or letting the context or letting what he should be doing overshadow who he is or who they are right so i think that that's a key point in coaching is allowing your athletes to express themselves in in any manner that they so choose and that's a key manner of creating a great atmosphere around a gym if you have athletes that feel like they have to conform just because you know we do this or we do that and then they're not allowed to express themselves i think inherently you're going to get a worse version of that person yeah and it's and to that point, it's it's trying to manage, hey, we need to make a team environment because if everybody's just doing their own thing, it's really, it's really, really hard to have that that family environment yeah. where everybody feels like they're a part of something. But there's but, a team environment where it's enabling for people to be themselves versus a team uh, environment where it's like peer pressure and and just confirmation. A hundred percent. And and that's kind of where, where I want to go with it is like, 
how do you manage the people that want to be, I guess the, the correct use of the term would be intentionally, there's intention behind how they use their uniqueness that they've developed. Dominic Cruz, like you said, perfect example. How do you get these intentionally unique individuals to all come together and go on the same path and work their way up? Because that's the age old, that's the age old, uh, I guess, question is we have all these different people. Say we're at a gym with 35 people. We have 10 people in the UFC. How do we get all 10 of those people that are already there at the dance working on their individual skills, but still close enough to where we propel each other forward? And that's, that's, I think, not just a good coach can do that, but you have to be a good manager of people. You have to be a good manager of, of how people interact and the different yeah. scheduling aspects. And that's where I think if you can get the schedule down, as, as funny as it is where we're doing a, an artistry episode and then we bring in the coach has to be the one that has an outline. <laughs> but if you can get all of your fighters being artists, and then have them on a, a very, I guess, thoughtful schedule to where they're training in the same environment, but still working on their own different attributes. That's how you progress people forward. Right. And, and I'm going to nitpick on a little bit of, of a thing that you said there is like, it's kind of ironic that we're talking about coaches like being organized and having the, the management side of things down, even though we're talking about like artistry. But like, I think that point is overlooked as well. Artistry doesn't just mean that you're spontaneous that you're just doing it off the cuff like artists yeah. like there's a ton of planning and organization that goes into you know perfect artistry like uh, i mean the age-old kind of uh cliche is like the like the fibonacci sequence right like yeah. Yeah. there's a ton of organization even though on the outside it looks beautiful and you don't necessarily see that organization happening there is that common um pattern that is being followed so like as a coach like planning the session, not due to like rigid protocols and like we have to stick by this and that planning the session and accounting for the underlying organization to highlight the individual um, environment, the individual person in front of you, I think is, is the artistry in itself. So there's a ton of planning and organization that can go into the artistry aspect of things. It's just, we get into trouble when we lose sight of the artistry and forsake that simply to stick through the plan. Right. If you're just doing a color by numbers and you don't care about the result at the end. Right. So um, that being said, those are my the, favorite, by the way, even though I can't color in the lines, those, those always turn out good for me. I know. I know. Austin needs, <laughs> Austin needs simple when it comes to, to coloring, I guess. Um, but what I was going to say is like in that team atmosphere, when you have a bunch of individuals in an individual sport, you want them to come together as a team, like that takes a lot of planning. And I think some of the best planning and some of the best way I've seen it done is we create principles, we create values and uh, like morals as a team that we can mm -hmm. all ascribe to, but we can individually express and we can individually um, take ownership of. So it's not necessarily like we have this moral it's portrayed like this for everyone it's like we have this moral we all are going to accept it as our own and then we portray it in the way that best suits our style best suits our personality best suits um everybody else and again you can influence a lot of culture on what those morals are like if we talk about you know collaboration then each athlete's going to help each other in some capacity. Maybe that looks like support outside of the gym. Maybe that looks like technical advice inside of the gym. Or if one of our morals is artistry, that's going to foster people to express themselves in the way or be comfortable being who they are in the gym and outside of the gym. So it's, it's a uh, planning heavy 
to be creative approach. Yeah. Well, and an idea I just thought up is like, what about planning in a uh, scheduled practice for freestyling, just a freestyle practice, like not just a sparring day, but like actually intentionally planning in a, an hour session of, Hey, grab a partner, work on what you want, grab somebody that wants to do what you're doing. If you're striking, you're striking, you're grappling, you're grappling and figure out what works for your body based off all the things we've taught you over the last week, like having it on like a Friday. I think that'd be a fantastic way as a, on the skill side of things to let people take what you teach in the rigid structure, say I'm teaching a body lock into an inside trip and making it work for them and see how it flows into their own game instead of, Hey, this is how I want it in your game. And now I think that's a, a wonderful idea, but I think there's also a second layer where coaches have to be comfortable letting that genuinely happen. Right. It's like, you can't, you can't come into the session. Yeah. Today. It's a, it's a freestyle <laughs> session, do what you want. And then like get, mad and butthurt that your guys aren't working hard quote unquote like you, yeah. you gotta you have to be free enough to let that happen because i've seen and I've, I've probably ran sessions like that where it's like all right you guys are leading the lift you guys uh we have the plan if you think there's something better you can replace it and then like then all of a sudden i come back in no we're doing this right so it's like you need to be <laughs> comfortable <laughs> letting that happen and letting that develop. And I think that that source of autonomy enhances the, the athlete's enjoyment of the session, but also, like you said, feeds into their own individual artistry in the, in the skill work. Um, you can also do it in the weight room too. Like, again, it, it's heresy to like let athletes choose the lift or let athletes um, decide what rep sets they're going to do. And like, but at a time that's, super important that's very warranted sometimes well that's that's actually what i've been getting into recently and that's where i want to move this is in in the weight room how do we do this and then i'll get yeah. to healthcare. sure but recently two weeks the last two weeks leading up to before they leave if it's an in-town fight um then it's the last two weeks or if it's two weeks before the fight and it's a ufc or whatever maybe they're traveling then it's two weeks before that i let the mm-hmm. athlete pick their own warm-up i'm like you need something anything i've taught you Something yeah. for the spine, something for the hips, something for the shoulders, anything outside of that. I want five exercises. Three of them have to be dedicated to that. Do your own warm up, see what works for you. And that's actually given me personally a lot of feedback as a coach mm-hmm. because a lot of the athletes keep picking the same exercises. And I'm like, oh shit, like maybe these are the ones that our guys like, or maybe these are the ones that are given the best bang for our buck. So it's almost like a, I ask them to do that, but it's feedback on what I've been teaching over the last year and a half. And allows me to, it, in the future, plan what they like into their lifts when we start up the next camp or yeah. when they're doing off-season training, when I have to kind of convince them to come in and train when they could be out hiking or some shit. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, like, that that was the point that I was going to highlight is you get to see what the athlete values. You know, it's not – and it's not like from a overarching sense of, like, I'm trying to always observe and everything, but it's from a sense of, like, you're getting a better aspect of knowing who the person is. Like, maybe – if I come in and I let, I say, all right, we got the next 12 minutes and like, you guys can choose what you want. And like, everybody goes to arm farm, like, all right, cool. Now I understand what, what the value is or like, <laughs> or like I, I let them choose the warm up, and then every, and then nobody goes through any of the warm up that I've been teaching for the last six months. Then like, yeah. I haven't done a good job installing value in that. Or um, what I've been doing recently too, is just offering feedback. Like I know I have, my conditioning day, I know I have my strength day, or I know I have my upper day and I'll have a lower day, or I have a trap bar day and a front squat day, whatever. I have my two days. I talk to the athlete, say, what day would you rather do today? You know, like, because yeah. in all reality, it doesn't matter if I trap bar front squat on a Monday, because I'm definitely going to do the other one on a Thursday. Right. right. So you talk to the athlete and like, 
And I've gotten a lot of insight into to how people spend their time outside of the gym because like, you know, just this morning it was like, well, I, I did the trap bar yesterday at, at the rec center. So I'm going to, we probably should front squat today. And it's like, uh, there you go. Great. You're doing the trap bar. <laughs> nice to know. Thanks. Which yeah, yeah is again, information for you as a coach, but um, it allows for the athletes to take some autonomy, allows for them to express, um, I guess, their own impact over the workout versus um, making it a, a like dictatorship. It's a it's a partnership, and I think that's where we can get the most value out of it. So, what what are some of the different things you had alluded to? Not doing sets and reps, not doing timed intervals. What are some of the, I guess, freestyle elements that you um, integrate with your fighters or athletes? The most simple one that I um, integrate is if we're doing like a triset or even a superset of some type of exercise, the one of the exercises is different every time. It yep. could be the same stimulus, the same like compound movement, but there's a little added emphasis or a little um, different goal within the movement. So I don't know, let's just take, for example, I'm going to do a front squat, a like overhead press, and then I want to work on single leg stability as my third tricep exercise. Yeah. That single leg stability is going to look different every set. It's not going mm -hmm. to just be a single leg RDL, three sets of five, go do it, right? Because that's easy to put on autopilot. That's easy to ignore. Maybe it's going to be a single leg RDL on the first set. Then we go through again. And then it's going to be single leg, you know, catch with a tennis ball or with medicine ball. And then the third time, maybe it's going to look like single leg step offs and it's a stick. Right. So we're going to hit the same quality, but we're going to change the exercise every time to keep athletes more engaged. Um, and there was also a, a really good, um, I guess, theory that I learned while I was in school uh, in pedagogy is called the forgetting hypothesis. So if you keep an athlete doing the same thing and you put them on autopilot, they forget what they're actually doing and they just mm -hmm. do it. They're not actually learning or not actually unless they're actively engaged, which is a whole different concept but if if we can just put it on autopilot a front squat is going to be a front squat going to be a front squat and i'm not thinking about my technique versus if i change the stimulus every time you know either changing a tempo changing the weight changing um your focal point something like that if we change it every time it becomes a new movement and i can't forget what i'm doing i have to focus in and then i can actually acquire the skill better in a sense so um so like i said Little variations in every movement with our sets is an easy way to do it. Um, one thing that I really like are flow movements. So instead of doing like three sets on a prone press up, three sets of five on a prone press up, and then three sets of five on a glute bridge, and then three sets of five in a lunge, you just throw it all together. We're going to yeah. do a lunge on each side into a press up into a glute bridge. And I just want you to flow through that sequence 15 times and then you hit your your reps anyway and it's a little more open-ended and those are probably bad exercises to throw into flow just for the people listening but you can choose your different exercises and plan it out well um that takes away the the strict sets rep schemes um performing exercises for time i think is a hugely underrated mm -hmm. um skill or underrated uh format well so it, just got, it, got, it got shat on for so long because of crossfit and right. it got like, it was, it was almost demonized to do things for time. Right. And I, th I think, again, that's as a coach, you communicating your expectations and helping that they'd understand, like, I'm not giving you 30 seconds of glute bridges so you can get the most 
the fastest glute bridges <laughs> in the world, right? I'm giving you 30 seconds of glute bridges so you can focus on what you're feeling, how you're moving and really perfect that motion. I don't care if you get five reps or 15 reps, but I just want to see good solid glute bridges focus on the movement. I'll worry about the time and all that stuff. So I think that's a, that helps a lot break up some of the monotony. Um, and then even, I guess for a last point here, week to week, changing the exercises. I know, again, that's kind of heresy because we want to, you know, grow technically in the same movement every week and progress and get better at the movement, which I think there is some movements that you have to do that, like a front squat. Like we should front squat consistently for four weeks if I want to get good at a front squat. But like if we're doing box jumps, every week can be a different type of box jump. Like we're getting Mm -hmm. the same stimulus, the same emphasis. So like Maybe week one is a straight on box jump. Maybe week two, we go lateral box jumps. Maybe week three, we go box jumps to a single leg landing, right? Like throw that variation in there. And I promise your athletes are going to appreciate it so much more. And they're going to find more, um, more intrigue in the workout and um, buy in a little bit more. Well, and that comes down to programming for patterns instead of programming for exercises, right? Yeah. When, when we break things down, we talk about it all the time on a, I guess, a negative aspect, but stress is stress is stress. The same can be said for programming, right? Stress is stress is stress. As long as we're stressing the symptom in the same ways, it doesn't matter what exercise I pick. Am I doing a squat-based pattern with a front load? Does it really fucking matter if I switch between a front squat, a zercher, a med ball squeezed front squat? Any, As long as we're getting the same stimulus and it fits into the paradigm that we're trying to increase, right? If we're doing a strength emphasis, it doesn't fucking matter if we pick the zercher versus the front squat. As long as we focus on the actual attributes, which is increasing squat strength, yeah. right? At the end of the day. So the same can be said for like me personally, when I'm programming, I switch up accessory work all the fucking time. Yeah. Like, and that just keeps my athletes fresh. Like it's, I'm going to make like for, for my football player, I just finished up his next week or his next, I guess, technically two weeks to programming. I switched the accessory work every single day. Yeah. The main lift stayed the same, but his accessory work switched but they stayed in the same patterns, right? It doesn't matter if I'm doing a single leg RDL with a 3D strap. It doesn't matter if I'm doing a single leg RDL with a landmine. It doesn't matter if I'm doing a single leg RDL with a sandbag into a a stability clean. It it really Mm -hmm. doesn't matter as long as I'm accomplishing the same goal, focusing on the same patterns and understanding that the stress that I'm putting on the system is going to maintain, is going to be beneficial in that exact position that I want it to be. Right. And well, I think it's interesting too, like getting back to the artistry aspect and the movement in general, like a lot of athletes or a lot of coaches, excuse me, talk about skills that they want to develop. Like let's say we want, we want our athlete to be able to hinge more and use their posterior chain versus be anterior loaded. Right. So I'm going to give them RDLs or I'm going to give them, you know, stagger stance RDLs. Um, and then we zone in and focus so hard, making them good at stagger stance RDLs when we lose sight that the skill we want to get better at hinging. Right. And so Mm -hmm. essentially we're making them really good at a stagger stance RDL. And then when they go perform with their sport, they're not really going to hinge at all. They just have this one program for a stagger stance RDL. They don't have a a retooling of their whole movement. So um, a coach that I follow on Instagram, uh, I think it is like art of coaching development and he's actually a football guy, but what he does, what he says, excuse me, is in football, it's common to have your everyday drills, right? That's your mm-hmm. warm-up session. That's like every every day you work on these certain drills. Let's flip that on the head. Let's make it everyday skills. So let's hit this skill every day and work on it, but let's hit with a different drill or with a different approach. 
because that's going to in turn be more valuable to change a general movement pattern versus changing a task specific movement. Well, and I would argue that that's, that is, and granted, this is not backed by evidence. This is my personal thought process. I can find evidence if I want to, but right now it's me. Yeah. I would argue that's a better stimulus that that's better for growth over time because it's exposing you to more novel stimuli mm-hmm. in a short duration in the same pattern. So while yeah. you are doing a hinge, you're hitting, we'll say 10 different stimuli in a matter of a week, instead of you're only doing one stimuli getting really mm-hmm. fucking good at it. But that one stimuli probably doesn't directly transfer to sport, right? Cause it's all about mm-hmm. transference. I really don't give a fuck if my athletes are really good at squatting. I, yeah. I really only care that does that front squat, the loading techniques, the biomechanical efficiency, all these different things, does that translate into sport for the best that they possibly can? Yeah. It's training someone or an athlete, a mixed martial artist. Again, they're an artist and most of the time they're, you know, um, business owners or, or self um, employed It's training them to be versatile in their whole business versus making them a technician. Right. If I want to make somebody a technician, I want them make them really good at hinging. I can do that. Like I have the tools in my toolbox, but that's not applicable to make them the artist that they need to be. Right. So I I don't remember the last time somebody already yelled somebody in the cage. (laughs) Right. And again, that's a whole nother can of worms that people get into with specificity. But um, but yeah, allow your athletes the freedom and the, uh, the variability to learn a skill and to apply that skill widely versus getting so zoned in on this is how you hinge, which again, time and place for the, the basics and the actual um, hammering of the movement patterns, but also time and place for artistry and for just movement period. And moving into, I want to hit the healthcare side of things because yeah. so many people in healthcare are so rigid. Yeah. In, in how they see things. It's an idea that I want to get out there. I know it's heresy, but does it really matter if we, if it is a lumbar disc herniation, if it's a lumbar radiculopathy, is it uh, a nerve entrapment at the piriformis? If they have cap, right. Does it really matter where the central source is in the movement? I think that's a waste of time personally. I mean, you should do your good, do your best to diagnose certain issues, right? Right. You want to be the best diagnostician possible, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to code calf pain. I'm not going to code 97 different things because what if I'm wrong? A lot of the times that's why, that's why it's called like, that's why it's practice. You're trying to figure out what the best thing for that athlete is or for that person. And a lot of the times we get so stuck in rigidity where if we call something a strain, there's a protocol to do certain things. Well, guess what? The athlete or the per- or the patient is allowed to have more than one problem. And if you're only looking at things through a rigid lens, you're not looking at things from all of the different aspects that it could be. And in reality, trying as many possibilities as possible to zone in on what works for that person, not for that condition, you're actually doing a disservice to the person you're working with. So a lot of the times, like if, uh, if I'm working on, we'll say jujitsu athlete with knee pain, cool. I'm going to, I'm going to code knee pain. I'm going to code knee pain, myalgia. So probably if I, if I had to guess a jujitsu athlete, some sort of lumbar, uh, joint dysfunction, um, or hip joint dysfunction, whatever it may be, but I'm looking at the neurologic aspect. I'm looking at the muscular aspect. I'm looking at the ligamentous tissues. I'm looking at, Hey, is the hip actually the problem or is the spine actually the problem? And trying to do my best to almost do a battery of tests to try to not pinpoint the one thing that's going wrong, but pinpoint multiple ways that I can make this person feel better and then progress from there. 
because I don't want to marry somebody to, oh, you have an MCL sprain. I want to marry somebody to, oh, these different exercises are your physical ibuprofen. That's what we start with. And then that physical ibuprofen progresses into strengthening. Because if we marry somebody to, oh, I have 10% of my MCL. How many times I heard that when I was an athlete? I still only have, quote unquote, 10% of my LCL on my left side. I don't even, actually, I don't even think I have an LCL on the left side anymore. My fucking varus and valgus tests are crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's, if you marry somebody to a diagnosis instead of just, yeah, I mean, I'm going to say this with a caveat, please don't lie to your patients. If you know exactly what's going on, please fucking tell them. (laughs) But if you marry somebody to one diagnosis, that's all they're going to think is wrong. Instead of saying, hey, there's a bunch of different aspects playing into your knee pain. I think there's a little bit of MCL sprain. I think there's a little bit of uh, neurologic inflammation. I think there's a little bit of, uh, we'll say your interior chain is overloaded. We need to load the posterior chain a little bit, blah, 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 a bunch of different terms. doesn't really matter. But what we can do is we can focus on the exercises, focus on the positive aspects instead of the negative aspects, kind of like I was talking about with coaching. If we focus on, hey, this is what makes you feel better instead of this is what you have going on, then we kind of switch everything on their head to where they're excited to come in to see you. They're excited to work on these different things. They're excited to get back on the mat and realize that they aren't limited and they can actually practice again because they have certain things that make the condition feel better instead of feel worse. Well, I think that's a good way to, and I think, I don't know when it was, we were talking about this, like willingly accepting the the, uh, complexity that happens in the human body, yep. right? Like, and I think by default, we need to get better at communicating that complexity that's happening, which is exactly what you're talking about, helping the athlete focus on the positive solutions rather than, you know, you're going to get the athlete that comes in and is like, well, what's actually wrong with my knee? And instead of just like kind of fumbling and saying, well, we don't really know, I don't really know, blah, blah, blah. You can say, well, there might be this happening, might be this, but the focus should be on our solutions because we can we can um, encapsulate a few different issues with this protocol. Well, dude, I'm <laughs> maybe it's just me, but I'm 100% okay saying I don't fucking know what's going on with you. Right. I've said that to so many athletes at this point where mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I guess not so many, but probably five or six athletes at this point where I'm like, I think it's a conglomeration of four or five different things. I don't know. I really don't know what's causing your pain. There's, there's a few things going on that, but what I do know is these different aspects allow us to progress forward. So it really doesn't matter at the end of the day, what the diagnosis is. We know how to progress your symptoms and we know how to progress how you're feeling forward in a beneficial way. And that's really all that matters at the end of the day. It does, like I said before, it doesn't matter if you have an MCL sprain, it does matter that we're progressing forward. We're progressing towards getting back on the map. We're progressing towards striking again, because that's what keeps people happy. That's what keeps people healthy. And that's brings in the mental side of healthcare that everybody, I guess, likes to forget about that a lot of the times up here in your brain is really what's causing the, the I guess, the last 30% to not go away. It's not the tissue tolerance. If, you, if your injury happened four months ago and it's not catastrophic, the tissue's healed. I hate to break it to you. That's that's <laughs> physiologic healing time. Yeah, It's up here and you not accepting that these painful pathways and, and not realizing that you can do these different things. That's where our grade exposure techniques come in. That's mm-hmm. where the pain science aspect comes in. But it's it's all in the brain to where we can show you that, hey, you're not married to this injury anymore. Let's progress forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
earlier you made a caveat and I think we have made this caveat, but I want to say it very clearly, like we love this approach and this is where you should ultimately get to. But before you start making these unique um, actions or make this artistry approach, you have to be good at your job. You have to be good at your fucking job and know, know the technical, know what you're doing and, and have that baseline understanding and then start to open up and play with it a little bit. I think a lot of the times if we start kind of finding this artistry and this um, creative approach early on and where, where you haven't had the experience and maybe um, I'm being very hypocritical now, but if you start doing that too early, then you're just ignorant and then you're just kind of making things up on the fly. I think you need to have the confidence that you've been through um, certain experiences, you've seen things before that you can create a system of thought, just like Austin's describing with his um, approach to pain, um, have that system of thought in place before you start freestyling, before you start um, creating a, a more flowing approach. And I think that's, um, I think that's just your due diligence, right? Is to, to be good at your fucking job. No, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw it a lot when I was in Cairo school that like, <laughs> it's, you're in your first quarter of Cairo school and you think that you never have to learn an ortho ever because uh, it's, it doesn't really matter. They have very low specificity. Why the fuck would I learn this? Well, guess what? You need to know the tests in order to rule in and rule out all of these different. It doesn't matter about one test. It matters about doing the tests together and trying to make the best possible picture for that athlete in front of you or for that person in front of you. Just because you want to be able to freestyle doesn't mean you can't learn the skills, right? Because like, like Andy Galpin said, we, we say it all the time. You got to be a cook before you become a chef. You got to be a cook first. You got to learn the rules before you start to go outside the box. And if you don't go, if you don't know the rules, you never know where that line for the box is. So that's, and that's kind of why I, I love hate you referencing all the, the UFC champions, because like somebody could look at them and be like, well, he doesn't do it that way. You know, like, so I'm just going to skip straight to that approach. And it's like, no, he doesn't do it that way because he understands that the, the opponent is expecting it to come that way. So he can modify and, and alternate. Like once you get to a certain level, that's when you start breaking the rules versus like, you have to learn the rules and know the rules in order to break. Um, right. And I think again, that again, not the focus of the podcast, but I think that's a, that's a good point to hammer home is that, that do your due diligence, learn the basics and then create your art artistry approach because there's, tons of things like in MMA grappling that I'm starting to learn, like, well, I want to do this. And I think this would be a really good approach. And then it's like, no, that's just bad position, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and so, <laughs> um, so it, it's an interesting paradigm where you're unique for a purpose or you're, you're intentionally unique, kind of like we talked about before. So, um, what else you got for healthcare on the, the unique approach or artistry no, I mean, based approach for the TLDR? For the people out there that didn't want to listen to me ramble on about healthcare, it's at the end of the day, it just boils down to don't marry yourself to one thing, allow there to be multiple options and focus on the athlete, not the diagnosis. So that's, that's all I got. And I mean, I think you can extrapolate that to skill practice and strength and conditioning. Like don't marry yourself to a method, marry yourself to athlete enhancement um, in the weight room. And then I don't know. And I I think uh, Scotty, who was on a couple of podcasts ago, like, he explained this theory very well. Like you're giving your athletes tools and the freedom to use what tool when they see appropriate. You're not, yeah. you're not giving them a straight recipe. You're giving them a couple of ingredients and letting them become an artist. So yeah, no, I love it y'all. So please like share, subscribe, 
do all the cool things that allow us to talk to your friends because that's the only way we can further our reach and keep elevating MMA as a whole and just combat sports in general. If you got any questions for me or Alex, please shoot it to the Instagrams or emails in the show note, as well as we have our website live. So we have programs for individualized content, uh, month one of the Building a Fighter sequence. We have a jujitsu mobility program. We are starting with a monthly mobility program, as well as there's a low back program. If you are a grappler or a striker that has been having any low back problems, so it helps strengthen up that area. Um, and that's a whole month program. So please check those out uh, if you have any sort of issues or you want to progress yourself. And as always, this is Building a Fighter, Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Friedman. And we are out. <laughs>